In this episode, I'm joined by our Director of Education, fellow entrepreneur and executive, Mr. Tim Morris, also one of my best mates. Uh, we talk about disruption for the first 20 minutes. Rosie doesn't get a word in. This is one of the most important conversations I think we've ever had on Ask Jack D. And in the last little bit, we talk about the Entourage mission, how we quantify it, and we give you guys the facts and the stats as to how mission, when obsessed about and embodied, flows through to tangible, measurable results. I loved this episode. Let it rock. 28 and I'm trying to shape history. Pulling from the sky for some strength to take with me. Line up the stars, I fly away quickly and push the world forward like a tidal wave hit me. I ride the wave swiftly, I fear no man. Check my titles, mate, quickly. Came from the sky with the light of day in me. You grew my own Welcome to episode 216 of Ask Jack D. I am very happy today to be joined by one of my good friends and our Director of Education at the Entourage, Mr. Tim Morris. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've been behind the scenes on a couple. You've, you've been completely behind the scenes. Timmy used to live here with me in Mossman. And so for those of you that have watched the live shows that we usually do in that room over there, occasionally Timmy made a bit of a cameo here and there. Yeah, when you walked around, you'd be like, oh, there's Tim over there. I mean, it's like wave away. So I'm excited to be on the main stage. We are very excited <laughs> to have the spotlight on Timmy today. For those of you that are unfamiliar with Tim's background, he's done everything from starting to build several different businesses to teaching entrepreneurship at places like RMIT and Juicer to running other organisations. Tim was the general manager of Uber when it first launched in Melbourne, so we're looking forward to having a very in-depth and broad conversation about all things entrepreneurship today with Timmy. Rosie, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm really excited to have Timmy on this show. So am I. Timmy, let's start by talking about the Uber days because Uber is a business that fascinates so many of mm, us, particularly yeah. around, you know, you and I often talk about them in the context of like what a product to market fit. I don't think I've ever seen a product or an app or anything in Sydney and Australia yeah. spark yeah. and get the level of traction that Uber did early on. What do you think they did right? Yeah, well, they did a lot of things right. And Uber as a business model has evolved. Uh, yeah. It's had, had some big evolutionary steps since well, when we were launched in Melbourne in early 2013, no one had heard of Uber in Australia. Mm. Like you, mm. I'd say, hey, we bring this thing to Australia. Uh, it's a smartphone app where you can get a car. It's called Uber and they'd be like, what? Um, and, but back then it was only Uber Black. So it was the limos, it wasn't Uber X or all the other sort of different evolutions of the business model now. But it was the first time um, and I'd, I'd had several of my businesses before then. This was the first time, sadly, I ever really saw product to, product to market fit being perfectly achieved. So not in my previous ones. And it was here that I kind of learned that um, it really, it, it crystallized how well they sort of sparked people's interest when I could walk up to a group of people who I'd never met before, um, walk, so there might be eight or 10 of them standing around and I'd say, hey, this is what we're doing. I'd show them the app and they'd see like little ants running around and within 30 seconds, people would be pulling out their phone, downloading the app and installing it. And you're like, right, that's when you know you've got something that's really capturing people's attention. This is the first time, I, that's, that's what I go back to all the time saying product and market fit needs to get that kind of response. One of your obsessions is product to market fit, yeah. which, which, you know, like in our programs, for instance, so as director of education, Tim uh, produces effectively all of our different courses and the curriculum and the content and the structure and all of that sort of stuff. He gets terrible results, don't you, mate? Oh, shocking. What, what was our latest <laughs> M NPS on the accredited side? Uh, plus 67. So no, no, it was 74 yesterday, you said. No, no, that was a build, a build intake. That was one of our unaccredited ones. Gotcha. And then we've got accredited, we've got plus 67. So 67, that's yeah. right, up from 57. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 
So for those of you that know NPS, so what's what's Apple's NPS? Uh, about 60, net promoter score for those 61. Of so 61. yeah, so net promoter score for anyone who doesn't know, you, you go out and you say to your customers, how likely are you to recommend us to one of your friends? And they give you a score on zero to 10. Um, only nines or tens are counted as promoters. And then you've got uh, passives and detractors. So you just do a bit of math and you're like, you can go from negative 100 to positive 100. And so you're sitting up in the in, you know, high 60s, low 70s for some intakes is huge. Particularly in education, because in education, yeah. particularly on the accredited side, we're going to do your homework. Uh, so it's, it's harder, <laughs> in my view, to build raving fans, right? Because yeah. there's almost this obligation and stuff. Um, and so, you know, T Timmy is incredible when it comes to product market fit and also education. The reason I was saying that was around Uber. If you were to reverse engineer what they did in the process they went through, through the mm. lens of product market fit, what do you think it was that enabled them to get there? Uh, well, it all starts, I obsess about product market fit, first of all, because I think it's, A, we didn't really know about this as a concept 15 years ago. So I've been studying entrepreneurship for a long time now, and we just kind of didn't know that you should, and it makes so much sense now, that you should go and find a customer need first, then come up with a really unique solution to it, mm. and then make sure people are willing to kind of pay you money for it. And that is exactly the process that Uber went through. They, and like Travis Kalanick, who's the founder of uh, Uber, will talk through how they were bemoaning how you couldn't get a taxi in uh, Silicon Valley. Like, you just can't get one there. And so that's where it started from, it was a pain. And then they had a whole bunch of ideas like getting their own limos and like, no, nah, no, nah, let's be more scalable or smart about that and do a, a platform. But it started with that problem. It was a problem that they were facing. And then they said, right, let's make something really clever to solve that problem. And then it really appealed to people. And in terms of iteration along the way, can you speak to any insight you have around, you know, how it started and then how did they continuously iterate to get to a point where, because one of your rules is walk into a circle of five people, is it right? Yep, five, yeah, five people, how many? And four out of the five, provided they're in your uh, target market, if four out of the five go, wow, mm. that's product to market fit. So yep. what sort of iterative process did they go through to get to that? Well, you've seen big, big steps for, um, first of all, there was the Uber Black, which is what we dealt with. So I actually left just before Uber X came out. Mm. Uh, so Uber Black, which was a limousine uh, where you could get like a luxury hire car, mm. um, actually came out reasonably fully formed as a concept. So, mm. the, but where all the iteration and innovation happened was within with the technology. So the dispatch system, and that's what, I mean, a lot of people think Uber is about the cars and the drivers and the people, but it's actually really about the technology that sits behind it. Yeah. That, that you know, dispatches the cars, shows you how far away it is, tracks where you're going. So they did a lot of innovation there. But then the, the next big innovation was going into ride sharing, uh, which UberX. So, and that was, that was in response to what was going on in the market. And, and I think this is important to product to market fit because you might have product to market fit uh, today, but then something changes in the market. And so what was changing in their market was ride sharing. So you had Lyft, Sidecar, a couple of other businesses in America that were starting to eat their lunch because they were letting you just, instead of hiring a private car, you were just getting some dude to pick you up. And so that was the next big innovation they had. Uh, then we've seen a similar kind of pattern with, um, with food delivery. So Uber Eats is now seeing mm -hmm. like Foodora and all the other ones that are competing there. Mm -hmm. so. The market has changed and they've shifted or evolved their offering to keep having that product to market fit. Does Travis obsess about it, do you know? Uh, I probably couldn't talk to that that much. Yeah. I, I have certainly met him a couple of times. In the early days in San Francisco, I was there when he was talking about launching UberX and it was because um, it's like, we are not gonna, we're not gonna let someone else disrupt move into us. here and disrupt yeah. us. We're yeah. gonna disrupt ourselves. Yeah. Um, so that would obviously come from, that was 
pretty early spot, I would yeah, say. Yeah. It's not as though, yeah, it wasn't. They hadn't made a huge uh, footprint yet. You could see that they were coming, but they weren't, uh, the horse hadn't bolted, which is what yeah. entrepreneurs do so often. They just don't pay enough attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, I'm just fascinated by everything with regards to disruption. Yeah, I was talking to Scotty Farquhar from Atlassian, who obviously started here in Sydney. They started in like a, I think it was, uh, was, it, was it Mike's uh, apartment? Anyway, they, they had a tiny office above an adult shop here in Sydney. And now 10, 12 years later, the list on the NASDAQ, $4 billion company. One of, one of the great things Scotty was saying to me a, a year or two ago was in Atlassian's history, they went from being a disruptor to mm. being somebody that wanted to continue to disrupt, but also needed to place a huge amount of emphasis and focus on who will disrupt us, oh. given we're now the size of organisation we are. One of my favorite and how topics. do we disrupt ourselves so that somebody else doesn't? And it, the whole thing is because it's, you know, creative destruction, right? The new, the, the, the incoming and the growth and the scalability of the new often sees the demise of the old. And so it's all the disruptive businesses, mm. Atlassian, Uber, whoever, once they become the largest incumbent mm. are then thinking about how do we disrupt ourselves yeah well and, and what happens oh, i love these topics so what, you <laughs> might not get a look in this episode <laughs> no, i know Just um, my laptop so <laughs> it turns out that innovation like sustaining innovation is often often the thing that leads to an environment being right for disruption so what happens is you'll have a, a business who becomes the incumbent and then they just go through little innovations and they drive yes. They drive the value proposition and most importantly, the price of their product up and up and up. And that's great for their top tier of customers. The people yeah. that want the most features, can pay the most money, that satisfies them. But it starts opening this huge pool of dissatisfied customers yeah. who just wanna pay a cheaper price for something that's simple that gets the job done. And so that sustaining innovation leads to disruptive innovation. And, people, and that's when you, yeah, you might've been the dominant player in your market for a long time and you leave it open for other people. It's so much of that, in my view, is, and, and we see this in education every day, right, mm. is that the larger the institution becomes, often in a historical, traditional sense, not the case with the Uber and the Atlassians, but tra traditional incumbents typically, by virtue of their size and their bureaucracy, I reckon, particularly at the top, a disconnect forms between mm. them and their consumer. And someone better, can't, well, when I say better, someone with a more intimate understanding and a greater hunger to truly connect with and satisfy their consumer then destroys it, right? Because they're not too big to fail. Somebody else has a better relationship with yeah. the consumer. And, they... and, and yeah, they don't have the innovator's dilemma. Like those larger yes. businesses, they, yes. like, it's hard to disrupt oh. yourself. So true. Yeah. yeah. Should talk, we do any talk, questions or no, are we just going to keep talk going? Talk about the innovator's <laughs> dilemma. Um, well, the, so the innovator's dilemma is, is wrapped up in all of that. So what happens is the, um, the, the dominant market player will keep on um, going through sustaining innovation or incremental innovation to make their products better, sexier, more feature-laden, uh, higher price because they're increasing margins. And then they often will come up with ideas that will disrupt that, their existing products. Um, the greatest example is being Kodak. Like Kodak invented the digital camera. However, you have the executive sitting there going, we have this massive revenue stream and profit stream. It's our most profitable products. And you're saying that you want to disrupt it with something else, and that's the innovator's dilemma. What do you do? Do you, do you bring in this disruptive technology, this disruptive idea that you might have come up with yourself, but sacrifice or eat your own revenue streams? And the answer is yes, because yeah. if you don't cannibalise your traditional business, Uber will, or Atlassian will, or the entourage will, 
right? How I articulate, like in education, right? Like we, we do steal market share from traditional incumbents yeah. every day. Um, how I articulate, the other component of the, the innovator's dilemma is that when you're truly innovating, when you're truly thinking about creating or bringing something to the world that doesn't yet exist, um, there is often, by, by definition of it being innovative, often not as much substantiated, historical, tried and proven data you can point to to go, this is a good idea because, right? As a business mm. grows, they become quite risk averse. And so they need the data, the historical, the tried and proven in order to justify it to the board and to the shareholders and all of that sort of stuff. And so they lose their, their sort of nimbleness and their flexibility mm. and their agility. Whereas somebody else comes along and, 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 and they're happy, they have a higher sort of uh, aptitude, if you like, to take the risks necessary in order to place big bets on true innovations. Yeah. How, yeah, how do you write a business case on something new when, That's right. when there's yeah. like, nothing to draw on? So the innovator's dilemma is that by virtue of you innovating, there's probably not much data or tried and proven methodology you can point to to support your hypothesis. But you've got to go anyway. It's like, okay, Rosie, you may not appear <laughs> Do in I need episode. to be here? No, you don't. Should I go? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might stall, like, the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> He, the, this is this is a good entrepreneurs need to be across everything that we're talking about right now. It, uh, however, becoming big, as we've highlighted mm. in Uber and Atlassian, doesn't need to mean that you do become risk averse. Steve Jobs bet the future of Apple on particular product lines time mm. and time again. He did it with the uh, you know when he came back in '96, '97. And you know he needed no. Well, well, in the quarter before yeah. he came back, Apple had lost seven hundred nine million dollars in the quarter. Everybody, including Jobs himself, had written them off. And then he reluctantly came back, and he kind of had one swing. If he got it right, they they might live. Mm. If he didn't, they were gone. And he bet he bet the entire company on. You remember the Macs that they brought out with the mm. color backgrounds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that was, then they did it again with the iPod. Then they did it again with iTunes. He needed to rally the entire music industry. Uh, then he did it again, you know, with, with the iPhone. There were several different points in Apple's evolution where the risk that Jobs was taking, and Apple at large, was taking in order to get to a position mm. where they ultimately, prior to Jobs passing away, became, for a moment, the most valuable company in the world. They had to take big risks. And, but the irony is, right, so this, they were making, they were taking massive risks but actually not innovating like that and not pushing forward is riskier than in betting the, the medium business. to long term. Yeah, well, but, well, and definitely in the long term. Yeah, 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 not, the, yeah. yeah not the short term, but in the long term, we yeah. know, like every business goes through that life cycle yeah. and we see that the Fortune 500, the average age of those businesses is just getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. 100%. They're just getting displaced quicker. Yeah, the, the reason I think the medium to long term is, is an important distinction is because particularly when a company becomes public, what, what's the conversation become about? Quarterly mm. fucking results. And, mm. you know, not to, well, probably, yeah, two discount quarterly results. I'm not saying they're not important, but what I'm saying is if you, if, if an organisation needs to take a risk for a quarter or two or three or four in order to shore up a sustainable future, uh, then that is a risk worth taking. But to convince traditional conservative shareholders mm. or a traditional conservative board of that, unless your job's, can be difficult. Well, and I think that's why he did so well, because he, he was a storyteller, because he, he could convey the dream, he could convey that picture of the future, and that's what you need. If you're yeah. going to have people to have short-term pain, yeah. particularly if you're beholden to shareholders or a whole group of people, you need to paint the picture. 
That was one of my most enjoyable conversations on Ask Jack D history. Awesome. And, I, and if, if, I'm deadly serious when I say this. If you just watch that conversation, pause this video, go back and watch it again. Because the conversation we just had is, it's what you obsess about, it's what I obsess about more than anything else, which is disruption, innovation, why companies stop, why stop innovating, and, and even in the psychology of an entrepreneur, right? T sometimes when a business gets to a certain size, like you're doing a couple of million dollars, it's still incredibly small. Mm. But if you're the entrepreneur and you own the business, that can feel like a bit of money. And, and like, if you can sustain it, it's retirement money. So typically, even early stage entrepreneurs can feel yeah. a, a risk aversion much sooner than what they perhaps could um, and stop innovating, yeah. right? And yeah. so like, yeah, this is a really important field to understand the levers of innovation and the prohibitors of innovation of businesses of any size. Mm. All right, Rosie. Okay, so I get to have my... <laughs> <laughs> Easy now. <laughs> okay, this question comes from... <laughs> we should almost just keep talking. Let's and just keep talking. Come calling back. <laughs> okay, so Catherine asks, how long did it take for you to realise your first business wasn't the right business for you? What did you do once you decided this? How did you go from one project to the next? For me, uh, the, my first business uh, ultimately didn't succeed, and, and thank God, because it was a business that I hated. So firstly, I'd been working in a call centre my entire teenage years, so I hated call centres, but I wanted to become a business owner. I wanted to become somebody that could influence things and, and, and build sustainable organisations. And I had an opportunity to partner with a couple of people to start a call centre, so I did. Hated call centres, wanted to learn about entrepreneurship and business, so, so I went after it. And so I didn't have a lot of love for it to begin with, but I did have a lot of love for learning about the game of entrepreneurship. I got to a point where I felt like I had learned as much as I could and I would in that environment with that team, right? And then we got it to a point where we, we spent years in the, in the red, got it back to a point where, I, where we were in the black, and so we could shut it down without, uh, without doing wrong by anybody, if you like, sort of everybody had been looked after. And then it was about, okay, I think I've learned the lessons, don't love it. I think I'd probably grown from, a, uh, from like an emotional, personal standpoint to become more aligned with actually doing something that I did enjoy. That became more important to me. So I felt it was okay to walk. Mm. Was, uh, so my first business was an innovation consulting business called Dynamic Horizons that I ran for uh, five or six years with um, my business partner, a guy called Jason, mm. uh, my sensei, taught That's me a, a lot of stuff. Five or six years. Yeah, we ran it for a while. Um, I, I also dabbled in a number of other businesses sort of uh, towards the latter stage. Um, I really, we, I think we just decided it was time to move on, different stage of life. My main thing was that I think that... Um, that consulting style business, there isn't enough scale in that for me. Like I want something that I can really scale. It's not just dependent on my time. Um, I just thought there could be a lot more creativity injected in what I was doing. I, I then actually went into a, a whole series of businesses that it wasn't that I chose to, uh, to leave them. They just didn't work. And this is, this is part of the reason I love product to market fit so much because I didn't really understand it back then. So I just spent too much money and too much time trying to get business off the ground that I thought were an amazing idea. Yeah. Just no one else did. <laughs> what kind of ideas? What kind of ideas? Oh, what do we have? Um, well, some of them weren't as bad as others. Like the, the Pantless Postman underwear and socks by subscription actually did, uh, did work to an extent. You just got to sell a lot of underwear and socks volume. to make money. Um, yeah, like massive volume. Mm. Um, but then I had other ones from like a... a 
a platform, a multi-sided marketplace for marketplace for e-learning course developers um, that I managed to you know put you know maybe twenty thirty thousand dollars into to build this fantastic functionality, and then no one cared. Um, what are some other ones that um, that I tried to get off and fail? It would have been a, there's thousands of ideas that never even saw the light of day. But yeah, so first one was a discrete choice. Like I didn't want to be in that um, low scale consulting game for ages. The next couple were, I just got too excited by the ideas. Didn't go through product to market fit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think typically what happens is you outgrow the business or the business can outgrow you, right? There's a lot of entrepreneurs that get to a point where a business gets to a certain size and, it, and it's almost in line with what we we're talking about earlier in that there's now layers of management and you no longer know your staff by the first name and you don't have the agility that you once did. And so for someone, for me, the bigger my businesses get, the more I feel at home. So I'm the opposite. But for some entrepreneurs, they love the start and I mm. love the start as well. I just yep. prefer the bigger game. Um, so the business outgrows you or you outgrow the business. And in either instance, you can then choose to, to move on if it hasn't got traction or if it has got traction, sell it. Yeah. And I, and I think the important thing on that is paying attention to what gets you excited, like what stage gets you excited. Exactly. Because I've honed in now I, the, the stage that I really like. Well, I love helping guide people through product to market fit. The stage I like being involved in is the high growth stage. Yeah. yeah. Foundation's kind of in place. How do you then yeah. build a team? You know, lead everyone through that. 100%. Yeah. Whereas in when when both you and I were early 20s, we probably liked the start, start, start the hustle, right. yeah, the survive, ideas. the, yeah. the knick-knack stage. Yeah. Um, whereas now we like something a bit more substantial. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah, maybe, maybe maybe grow into it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Love Next it. Rosie, we've been going for 20 minutes. That's okay, you, I'll let you go for another. Um, how, many, um, how many questions do you have left that you'd like to ask? Oh, we've got at least... Two. Okay, let's do two questions, rapid fire, or wrap within 25. Okay, Great. I don't think you can do that, but we'll Challenge see. We'll see. I think <laughs> okay, this one comes from David Men. He asks, did you find any similarity in your half marathon mindset and business mindset? We did that together. We did that together, I yeah. love this question. <laughs> um, oh, me first, did I have any similarity? Yeah, I, I think there probably is a similarity in that um, I, my mindset's very much, if you're gonna do something, it's worth doing it properly. Uh, so whether you're in business, like you should be pushing hard, thinking about how you can do it properly, go for scale, that kind of stuff. And the same applies to running and training. So uh, yeah, as everyone would have, we, we did morning trainings, like two mornings a week for quite a while. And um, I was definitely like, right, we've gotta go hard. Everyone was like, whoa. <laughs> but yeah, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. I find there are so many similarities between running, running a half marathon or a marathon, even if you're training for footy and like you're trying to get to the grand final. So many parallels between that and business. Mm. Main one, well, there's so many. Some of them are. Uh, you've got to train a lot, mm. right? I think that particularly with the heightened romanticism around entrepreneurship is... You, you, it's easy if, if you're a young player up and coming with not much business experience, to, to think that it's all glory and all the f and awards and revenue and profit and holidays and whatever, and it's not. 98% of it is training, is getting up early and running in the fucking rain when it's cold and doing it alone if and when you need to. And then, you know, you, you run the marathon, which you might not enjoy either, particularly mm. when, with me, my leg gave out at like 15K and so I needed to run the, the final bit injured but you got to keep going yeah, even yeah. though you don't yeah even, <laughs> even though you don't want to like well, no, you want to but yeah. even though it's 
highly challenging and mm. somewhat painful. And then you cross the finish line, you get a medal, and you go to brekkie. Yeah. You know, like, and so, so, so the train. There's training parallels. The other oh. parallel is the build. Yeah, right. Like you start by running at the beginning. We ran. I think that first time we ran seven. We did the bay run. Yeah. And Katie and I afterwards. You're, you, Timmy's pretty good. He's very fit and he runs a lot. But Katie and I were like, oh my god, like no idea how we'll run 21 mm. after doing so. Then, yeah, you built really slowly quick. build, and that, and that's exactly the same as business. When you start out in business, you're like, I wonder if I could ever do a hundred grand a year, mm. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like that's what I thought when I started. And then you're like, and then you do a couple hundred grand, and then you go, I wonder if I could ever do a hundred grand a month. And then you go, I wonder if I could do a million a month. And then you, you know, like, and and what once seemed unachievable and unattainable. You, you, you start doing almost, well, not almost naturally after all of the training mm. and all of the challenge. So, yeah, I've got, yeah, two, that leads to a thought for me is about how quickly you level up. And that's amazing. Like, you, because, yeah, it was like seven and then you're 12 and then yeah. you're 16 and then you're yeah. 21. So, it's like once you've got that foundation, you can really take big strides forwards. Uh, and the other bit, the other similarity is that, like, crossing, crossing the line, finishing it isn't really that that's not the best part. It's when you reflect back and you're like, oh, like remember all those training sessions that we did? Remember all the progress I made? Like it's just, it's the journey. And that's the same with business. Like it's not often the things that you achieve. Like yes, the milestones are good, but it's often looking back and you're like, well, that was a cool journey. 100%. We're not going to finish on the 25 I, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> next question, Rosie. Okay, next one comes from Matt Coolahan from Twitter. He asks, how are you measuring the entourage's mission? Mm. I'll start at a broad level and then you can talk. Details. Yeah. Yeah. So the entourage's mission, company-orientated ultimate objective, is to become the number one, to be the number one education institution for entrepreneurs and innovators. The world's number one education institution for entrepreneurs and innovators. And so what happens is when we do a recruitment evening, for instance, sometimes we'll, need to re we'll be recruiting for 15 roles at once. And we'll, get it, we'll, we'll get sort of 80 job applicants in a room that will have been screened and all that sort of stuff for maybe six different roles. And I'll address them at the beginning and then they'll break off into, into different sort of groups mm. by role and they'll go through a kind of group interview thing. And what I do is I write that mission word for word up on the board. Then I go through each of the core fundamental words so to be the world's what does that mean world's means we have to be international and in x amount of countries number one how are we measuring number one timmy will go in, in, mm. into that in a second world's number one education what does education mean to us and what's our view on education you guys know i have a very firm view around traditional education and, and how ineffective it is and where is education going in the next 10 years and how do you engage people and, and reach people's hearts and minds through education. Um, institution, right? So world number one, education. is So, so follow me because we literally every single word we've thought through and can communicate and articulate. Institution, while we have an informal culture, we do have a world-class culture. We need to be an institution. And so that shows up from... Uh, what happens when you come to an event, what happens when you enroll in a program, when you come into the Entrepreneur Development Centre, how the tablecloths are ironed right up to the financial management and the operation and the operationalization of the organisation, right? So every detail needs to be world-class institution for entrepreneurs and innovators. And then we define entrepreneur and innovator and slant everything that we do because we're not an institution for um, 
large corporate CEOs, which would have a very different mm. repercussion on our branding decisions, right? So when we talk entrepreneurs and innovators, that flavor flows through our brand, through our programs, through our marketing, through, the, through our culture, through our entire organization. Um, Timmy, do you want to speak to some of the detail around? Yeah, some of the, absolutely. And uh, in the interest of time, Rosie, I'll be quick. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, we, on the detail side, what we really look at is we look at um, being the world's number one education institution for entrepreneurs and innovators. We look at how many students are coming in, like how many people are we touching, how yep. many people are we helping on their journey. So we, we definitely track that very closely. Then when students are in our programs, when they're, when they're learning about how to build their business or how to grow their business, we look at how engaged they are. We do things like net promoter score. Um, we look at you know, how much, how are they raving fans? Are they loving what they're doing? We look at academic progression because that's part of this education institution. It's not just edutainment; it's actually academic education. Uh, and then we look at graduations and, most importantly, the outcomes. So it's like, what do people do with the knowledge that we give them? Yeah. Do they yeah. do they get their business off the ground? Yeah. Do they have success? And you know, we we religiously follow our yeah. graduates and see what they're doing. And to, and to give you an example as to how that translates, if, if we just brag for a moment, because mm. I, think it, I think it's important, is uh, Harvard have an NPS of 41, we have an NPS of 67, mm. right? The average online diploma in Australia, the uh, retention rates through the four different census states, four different points throughout a diploma where, where you sort of go, are the students still enrolled? Uh, the average is 7%. We recently had our first intake for our mm. Diploma of Business get through the fourth census, 69% still enrolled, still engaged, right? And so that's 10 times, firstly, the industry average is pathetic mm. and disgusting, yeah. but we're 10 <laughs> times that, right? And it might be one of the highest in Australia. We should actually yeah. find that out because it probably is. Um, and so a level of obsession start, got it, starts with the mission, uh, then goes to to what degree have you thought about, embodied, discussed, decided what the mission means? Mm. How much do you care? And then how do you operationalize it and make sure it goes through the education programs and everything else? Yeah. Um, those are the kind of results that that kind of obsession garners. Yeah, and the most important thing about that, I think, is how much does everyone care about the 100%. mission and the vision? And that's why everyone at the entrepreneur, they we care about helping people pursue their dreams, build a fantastic business, like entrepreneurship, particularly, and me specifically, it's like one of the greatest vehicles for change. And we care, and that's why it translates down. Episode 216, Mr. Timmy Morris, you are definitely coming back. Timmy and I were joking this morning, we were just texting each other saying, mate, you gotta make your first proper, you know, uh, appearance on Ask Jack D. And uh, we were jokingly saying we needed to do it with a bottle of wine. We might actually do that next time. <laughs> can we, we have a longer period? We, we will we have a longer Rosie, period. Can we it have might a... be a live Facebook. <laughs> It'll be a 90-minute session. Uh, me, Timmy, we might get um, Taryn Williams, oh, who yeah, was an Taryn, absolute superstar. Yeah. She needs to go. Bottle of wine in the middle of the That'd table. Be awesome. And uh, we'll rock and roll. <laughs> Rosie, thank you for your patience throughout this episode. You got a few questions in there. It was good. I know. Finished strong. Yeah. It was we got good. more in than I expected. Thanks for tuning in, guys. I'll speak to you soon. So what that means right now is my head's in the cloud, my feet tied down. Looking at the world.